Growth is our topic. And only Jesus is full grown. Let me say that again. Only Jesus is full grown. If a Christian lived a thousand years and read the Bible through a thousand times and attended a hundred churches, that Christian would still, at the end of their life, be incomplete in their growth. Yes, we should be mature, but unlike physical adulthood and physical maturity, where we stop growing at, what, 16 or maybe 17 years old, spiritual maturity is not marked by arrival, but rather spiritual maturity is marked by continual growth. And a Christian, even if you lived a thousand years will never be done growing. Whoever arrives at Christlikeness, whoever arrives at being sanctified this side of eternity, we ought to be growing. A child who goes to the doctor, young parents in the room, what do they do? They chart their growth. That's pretty much all a doctor's visit is for the first 16 years or so of their life. Let's see if they're growing. And a child which stops growing would be a cause for concern, wouldn't he? The doctor would say, we need to bring him back. We need to do some tests. Something's not right. They're not growing in the way that they should be. They're, they're not growing at all, perhaps. Something is wrong. A plant that isn't growing is a, a cause for concern. Like some of you right now are thinking about your plant back home. You're like, that's right, my plant is worrying me. A puppy, even a puppy that doesn't grow would become a cause for concern to such a degree that that puppy will receive hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of veterinarian bills to figure out why this puppy stopped growing. Yet a Christian that is not growing is considered normal. A Christian that's not growing might be considered the usual, the majority perhaps. Are you growing? Eh, not really. Are we not concerned? Are we more concerned about our plants and our puppies than about our own spiritual maturity and growth? Mature Christians are growing Christians. I want to try to show you that this morning. And since, since growth then is vital to what it means to be a mature Christian, a healthy church ought to be a place where members are growing. We're in a series right now, which is a little different than what we normally do. Normally we do what's called expositional preaching, where we just walk through uh, a book of the Bible and expose God's Word. We've stepped back for a brief season to talk about the church, because it's important for us to know, what are we doing? What is this? 
And so we're doing a series on the local church called Peculiar People, and it's really defining what a healthy church is and ought to be. The first week we looked at the topic of expositional preaching, in other words, how people, God's people, are shaped. The second week we looked at the gospel, how God's people are saved. The third week we looked at conversion, how God's people are made. Last week we looked at belonging, how God's people are marked off in the world. And today we look at discipleship, how God's people grow. A healthy church ought to be a church with healthy discipleship. A healthy church is a place where people, God's people, are growing. So here's how I want to do this today, real simple. Number one, I want to ask the question, what is growth from the Bible? What does that mean? Number two, I want to ask the question, how do we grow? And the third question I want to ask is, okay, so now how do I help someone else grow? All right? You with me? There we go. Like my coach used to say, look alive, people. All right, what is growth? That's number one. What is growth? In creation, we see that God causes growth. In Genesis, first couple chapters, it says that God caused the plants to grow. Meaning, at the very beginning of the Bible, we can simply say this, that all growth is due to God's work. And God creates a world that is not stagnant or decaying necessarily, not yet at least. He creates this world that is growing. And God is the source behind all of that growth. Now what we see then played out in life and even in the Bible is this. You're either growing or you're dying. There's no in-between. So... Uh, uh, what is growth? Well, let's look at growth in the Old Testament, and then I want to go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Growth in the Old Testament, it's interesting, it's a little different than how they talk about growth in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, what's God doing with growth? Well, what we see is that the Old Testament focuses on numeric growth of the people of Israel, social and physical prosperity, and the growth of their land. Physical growth, national growth, and agricultural growth. And this was all tied to the covenant that God made with a physical people named Israel. When Israel was obeying the law, when they were walking with God, obeying the covenant, then God was giving them physical growth as a sign of God's power to the nations, how he's using this people. So, for example, we see the growth of age as a marker for uh, following covenantal obedience. Uh, for example, Psalm 92, verses 12 through 14, it says, The righteous grow like a cedar in Lebanon. And, this, and he says, The righteous, they, still bear fruit in old age. And so we see age as a marker of growth for God's people in the Old Testament. They're ever full of sap and green, it says, meaning they're, even in their old years, the righteous man is vibrant and youthful, he says. In Psalm 1, the righteous man uh, is, is talked of as someone who prospers in everything that he does. We see prosperity attached to the way that God is growing his people there. We see wealth. Those, those that 
give of their first fruits in the Old Testament. He says, it says literally their barns are filled and their, their wine vats are full. So Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. When there was righteousness in the land, meaning when there's covenant keeping among the people of Israel, God would grow that land with food. Psalm 85 verse 12 says, yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. And they were literally talking about their land, the land of Israel, the promised land. Turn to Jeremiah uh, in the Old Testament. It's, uh, we'll go to Jeremiah 12, page 599, 599. Now, in Jeremiah, we see a couple things. One, we see that the reverse is also true. So in the Old Testament, with Israel, as they were uh, living in covenantal obedience, God was growing them physically, nationally, agriculturally. But if they disobeyed against God and rebelled against Him and did not follow the law, what would happen? They would lose the land. God would bring a curse upon them. And so, uh, for, for, for example, in, in Jeremiah chapter uh, 17, you don't have to turn there, but in Jeremiah chapter 17, God says it's your own fault that you are losing this inheritance. Meaning because you have rebelled against me, I'm taking away the promised land that I gave you as a, as a promise of your covenantal obedience. And in chapter 29, we find that, that Israel now, <coughs> excuse me, has been taken into captivity in Babylon. And even in, in Babylon, there then is a sense of, turn back to me, and what you'll find is this, growth, even in captivity. So the repentance would look like building houses and growing gardens in chapter 29 and marrying and having kids. And he says, grow, increase, do not decrease. Again, we see growth of the nation, even in captivity. But now for that reason... What we discover is that it's possible, it was possible with Israel to actually grow biblically, yet have hearts that are hard and, and very far from God. So, uh, Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 2, if you're there, page 599, he says, you plant them and they take root. They grow, everybody say grow. That's the word he uses. They grow. They produce fruit. So what he's saying is, is that there's, there's growth among the people because they're going through this, these sort of things. They're going through these outward motions and, and there is growth. Yet, he says, you are near in their mouth and far from their heart. You see, there was another kind of growth that was needed. There was another kind of fruitfulness that was needed. And so for that reason, as the Old Testament develops, what we see prophesied is that there is a different kind of rain that's going to come. There's a different kind of uh, uh, cloud that is going to form. There is a different kind of fruit that is going to be born among the people of God. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 8 says this, Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them to bear fruit. I, the Lord, have created it. 
What he's saying is this, is there is coming this day as they're looking forward to this messianic era in which God is going to bear a different kind of fruit. He's going to rain down righteousness. There's going to be, he's saying, a different kind of growth that is not just simply about the numbers. It's not just simply about the nation. It's not just simply about the ground and the harvest and the agriculture. But there is some kind of growth of righteousness that God is going to do in his people in this messianic era. Now that takes us forward to where? The New Testament, right? We're pushed now to look at the new covenant and the people of Christ now who form around Jesus. By the time you get to the New Testament, what you discover is that the New Testament talks about growth in a very different kind of way. So instead of the New Testament talking about growth as physical prosperity, as national uh, growth or material gain or agricultural blessing, in the New Testament, every single time, growth is referred to as spiritual growth. Spiritual growth. Now just think about this. By the time you get to the New Testament, by the time the New Testament is finished, in AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. The people, even before that, the the Christians were so poor in Jerusalem that Paul was traveling all around the Mediterranean taking an offering to try to get some food so that Jerusalem church could eat. Christians in the New Testament were typically not marked by national, agricultural, or physical prosperity. They were often marked by the very opposite. They were often marked by poverty. They typically, well, sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't, but they weren't generally living long lives. As a matter of fact, what we see is as the pages of Scripture develop, and then if you look at the early history of the church, lives were often cut short. You know, Paul, for instance, the Apostle Paul lived until probably his 50s and he was beheaded. Young, young deacon Stephen preached a great sermon and he was stoned. And so, the, so growth then is going to look very different now when we're looking at the new covenant and, and how God is developing the local church. So uh, what kind of growth then marks the New Testament? Well, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13... Jesus talks about the kingdom in ways that is very uh, not physical. He says, you can't, when the kingdom of God is, 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 you know, it's, it's here, it's among us, but he says you can't point to it and say, oh, there it is. Or here it is. Because Jesus says the kingdom of God is something very different right now. It will be physical one day, but in this era, it is spiritual. Jesus says, like a mustard seed, Matthew 13, it's planted in a vineyard which grows. Now the kingdom of God then has this kind of growth attached to it. What sort of growth is that? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 on page 919. The apostle Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow. Everybody say grow. That's our word. We're to grow up into Christ. You see how different that is? Growth now is growing into Jesus. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. We're growing into our 
salvation. So growth in the New Testament means that we are becoming more like Jesus. Are you with me? We are to grow up in every way, he says. The building blocks that we use are not cement, they're not concrete, they're not rocks. The building blocks that we use are blocks of love in which we build a house spiritually, corporately, and individually. Now this is not in opposition to the Old Testament. It's not as if God was doing one thing in the Old Testament and giving prosperity and material gain, and then God said, hey, you know what, that didn't really work. I'm going to kind of do it a different way in the New Testament. It's not that at all. It's not opposition. What we see is, we see fulfillment. What the Old Testament is doing is picturing something that is going to be fulfilled in the New Testament. The kind of growth and prosperity that God was giving the nation of Israel is a sign and a shadow of a better kind of growth. We're not talking about something lesser than. We're talking about something better than. It's a sign and a shadow of the greater that is to come. And that is that everybody in this new covenant is going to be marked by spiritual growth. What is growth then? It's hatred of our sin. Love for God. It's stewardship of what God has given us. It's thankfulness. It's hopefulness. It's love for our neighbor. So that's what growth is, big picture. Becoming more like Jesus, all right? Spiritual growth. That's what we're talking about. Second question is, okay, so how do I grow? Let me give you five easy steps for Christian growth. Somebody say, don't do that. That's ridiculous. There, is, there, are, there are no five easy steps. All right? That's why all of you were looking at me like, seriously? Where's Joel going right now? No, we want, we want like miracle growth. We want the formula, don't we? We want the little like kind of bushy miracle growth hair of spiritual growth. Just, just sprinkle me with it and let me grow. And you know what? That's why a lot of Christians don't grow. It's because they're looking for some kind of quick fix. They're looking for something easy. Just give it to me. Just, just give me the key. Just unlock it for me. And, and it's not easy. As a matter of fact, we are in a war. As a matter of fact, there's nothing easy about our spiritual growth. It's very difficult. We are growing in opposition to everything around us. So there's nothing easy about it. So I, I can't give you five easy steps, unfortunately. But what I'll give you is some principles. How do we grow? Let me give you some principles, three principles. Number one, grow in grace. Grow in grace. Turn to 2 Peter again, which we read this morning already. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. This is how Peter talks about growth. What are we to grow in? How do we grow? First, he says, but grow in grace. Grow in grace of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to grow in grace? Because listen, you can't grow in God's forgiving grace, right? God has already 
forgiven you for all sins, past, present, and future. There is no more forgiveness that God can possibly give you. There is no more grace for your sin that God can possibly give you. It's not like we find out ways to get more of God's favor and grace. He's already given it to us freely. We have every spiritual gift in Jesus Christ. Amen? So what does it mean then to grow in grace? Well, a couple things. One, we grow in our understanding of God's grace. That's clear. We grow in our understanding of God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. We grow in our understanding of the big picture of God's redemptive plan. And we grow in our understanding of the minutiae of substitutional atonement and what Christ has done for us on the cross. We grow in our understanding of who we really were before Jesus changed us and, and who we now are and what God wants us to become and where God is going to take us. We grow in our understanding of God's grace. We also grow in our understanding and reception of God's enabling grace. You see, grace in the Bible is not just the forgiveness of sins. There is forgiving grace. But the other side of God's grace is what we could call enabling grace. Grace is often used synonymously with God's power given to us freely. Without God's grace, we would be nothing. Without God's grace, we could not obey Him. We could not love Him. We could not worship Him. You would not be here if it was not for God's grace. And so there's an enabling aspect to God's grace. So we can grow in God's grace as we are enabled by God to live for Him. We can also grow in the means of God's grace. Here's what I mean by that. The church, the local church. Mark Dever, who wrote the book Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, which has inspired this series largely, he talks about this, uh, this, this point of discipleship, and he, and he asks the question, well, what should Christians do in order to grow in their discipleship? And what he does is he basically just restates all the nine marks. Expositional preaching. Uh, 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 understand, right understanding of conversion. A right understanding of the gospel. A right understanding of church membership and church discipline. A right, right biblical theology. Meaning all of the regular stuff that makes up our church is how we actually grow in God's grace. This is what theologians often refer to as the means of grace, that God has given us various means, almost like a hose that you just kind of turn on and stand under to receive the grace of God, uh, the enabling, empowering grace of God for our growth and for our good. I mean, just think of it, like church membership. I've actually known somebody uh, many people, but I'm thinking of one in particular who really just grew simply through considering church membership. And it was refining for them. It was building for them. And, and, and that was part of their testimony was, was when they actually thought about responsibility to a local church. I've known many who have grown through church discipline, through the threat of church discipline, said, you know what, I actually don't want to be disciplined by a local church, and so I'm not going to continue in this sin. That's God's grace, you see? Like all of the regular stuff of what it means to be a healthy local church is, in a big part, how we actually grow in grace. We can add to that regular worship, 
singing songs that dwell rich, uh, allow the truths of God to dwell, dwell richly in our heart. Praying together, conversations with, with, with each other after church. Like All of this is just the water that we swim in. The local church is the environment in which a Christian ought to be growing. Like a garden. Come on, somebody. Like a garden. Where, where we've got good soil, we've got seeds that are being planted. There's, there's an environment for change, an environment for growth, an environment for fruit bearing. So how do you grow? Well, first, I would simply say this. Be involved in a local church. It doesn't have to be this church. Well, I wouldn't say any church. And that's actually a good point. Not just any church. A healthy church. That's why we're doing this series. We want to point you. If you don't end up here, that's cool. Just find a healthy church. A biblical church. That's where you can grow. And if you don't have a church home, we invite you to join this one. Members grow here. Let this be a garden of growth for us. Be involved in a local church. Don't separate your spiritual growth from the life, the regular life of your church. You know, bop around members' houses. Make that normal to just like pop in on people. And, and that's weird at first, but do it enough and it'll get, become normal, you know? Like the actual, what I'm saying is the actual people of your church are the primary people that God has put in your life for your growth. Like we don't think about that a lot. We often just think that we just kind of are, are jumbled together. Like we don't even know half the people that attend the church and we just go and they happen to be there. And, and what I'm saying is, is, no, God is a sovereign God who does everything for His purposes and for our good and for His glory. And so every single person that is part of this church is here because of God's intentionality. For you and for one another. So secondly, we, then, we grow in God's grace going on. 1 Peter 3 still, we also grow in knowledge. We grow in knowledge. This is my second principle on the question, how do I grow? Grow in knowledge. Some separate Bible knowledge from practice. You know, some say, man, knowledge stifles the spirit, and they're all about just the experience. But the problem is, is because their experience is often not backed by knowledge, they're experiencing something that's not biblical. Others say, you know, I'm all about Jesus and, and the ethics of Jesus and doing good for humanity. I'm not about doctrine. But because they're not about doctrine, they're actually about the wrong Jesus. And they're following ethics that Jesus would not get behind. You see, we actually change through knowledge. Knowledge is what empowers and fuels our Christian experience. Knowledge is what leads us to the right ethics and display of Jesus in the world. Well, where do I get this in the Bible? He says it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge. You see that word? Knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. That's a nickname for pure doctrine. The pure truths of the Bible. And he goes on to say, so that you might 
grow. We grow through good doctrine, knowledge, growing in our understanding. We don't need nourishment anywhere else but what we find in Jesus Christ. We don't need another foundation to be built in order for us to find real growth and flourishing in our life. We, we, we need the foundation that we have in Jesus Christ. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6 on page 943. We're warned here to not build other foundations, to not leave the foundation of what we have in Christ through the Scriptures in order to find growth. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. You see that development of growth there. But then he warns us, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of, of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. What he's saying is this, there is no other foundation for your growth and maturity than what you've already got in Jesus Christ. The foundation has already been set. The, 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 the footers have already been poured. And so he's saying that this foundation for you are these first principles, which he names here as repentance and faith and washings and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. These are the first principles. He's not denying these things. He's saying these are the basic building blocks that you have in your life. Don't move beyond them. Build upon them. Go from this elementary foundation to biblical doctrinal maturity. And it's a warning to not be trying to build another foundation. Meaning you don't need a new foundation. Don't give up on Christ. You don't need to turn to Eastern mysticism and, and stones and crystals and worldly ideas in order to find some meaning in life. You see, some have never built on the foundation that they received of Jesus Christ, and they've given up on that foundation, and they look around and they see, you know, rubbles of foundations all over the acres of their life. And when storms come, they have no structure to run into to find safety. Because they're constantly moving from one idea and one worldview and one thing to another thing. And what we're, what we're told here is to root yourself in Christ. To plant in this soil. Oh, a healthy tree is a tree that, is, that remains in the same soil. Imagine if you planted a tree and you keep picking it up and uprooting it and planting it somewhere else. And then six months later, you're like, you know, I don't know if I like that. And you, you uproot it and you plant it somewhere else. This is why many people are dying in their faith. It's because they keep changing their theological soil. They keep changing their biblical soil. They keep changing the, 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 the foundation and the bedrock of faith in their life. And so we're called here to build our life on this pure milk, on these pure doctrines, on this foundation of Jesus Christ. How do we do it? Knowledge is what he says. To grow in knowledge of Christ. Now how does knowledge change us? Stephanie was just in, in England doing some work with some churches that do work in poor parts of of, of England, and she was working with a young lady there, 
who uh, had come from a tough background. And while the lady was making her coffee or tea, they don't drink coffee over there, do they? Making her some tea, uh, Stephanie asked her, she, Stephanie just told me the story. She asked her, she's like, hey, um, how are you doing? And the lady said, uh, she said, I'm doing well. I just had a panic attack. And Stephanie said, oh, wow, you just had a panic attack. That's interesting. So what do you do to, like, I didn't, didn't notice, you know, what do you do to remedy that? And she said, I, I just wa- go for a walk. I don't remember exactly what she said, it was, but that was about it, right? I go for a walk. And I come back. So Stephanie being the kind of person that she is, starts exploring and saying, wait a second, you just go for a walk to deal with your panic attack? And so she starts digging in and trying to understand about this woman's history. And what she discovers is that uh, in, in times past, a panic attack would be so debilitating for this woman that she would have lost the entire weekend. She would have lost everything. So Stephanie's asking her, like, tell me about your growth. And she's learning about her. And there was this one quote that she, that stuck with Stephanie, that Stephanie passed on to me, that I'm going to now pass on to you. And the woman said, everything changes when you know you're loved. Think about this. Everything changes when you know you're loved. What did she grow in? Knowledge. I mean, whether or not she would have called it this, She grew in her doctrine of love. She grew in her doctrine of God's love. She grew in her doctrine of love of God's people and how she receives that and how she understands that. She grew to know love. She grew in her knowledge of Christ. Isn't this what 2 Peter's telling us? This is how we grow? Look, church, I'm just simply saying this. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. You don't need a new revelation. You don't need a new prophecy. You don't need a new vision. You don't need a new teaching. You need Christ. So build your life on this foundation. And my third big principle is this, and this is not uh, uh, separated from the first two principles, but they're all tied together. Because my third principle is actually how we know who Christ is, all right? My third principle is this, grow in God's word. Grow in God's word. So we grow in grace, grow in knowledge, and grow in God's word. Second, Peter, Peter, or Second Timothy, rather, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says what? All scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, for repu- reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God well, the woman of God, it's an inclusive term there, may be complete and equipped for every good work. This is how we do it. It's through the Word of God. And someone says, well, wait a second, do we grow through Jesus or do we grow through God's Word? And I simply must say we don't know who Jesus is if it was not for God's Word. That's how we grow in Christ. It's the Word of Christ. We grow through His Word. So we grow in it. We we, we grow as a a Word-shaped community together where we're regularly speaking and sharing the Word of God with one another. We read the Word and we apply it to our lives. Listen, let me say that again. Read the Word regularly, every morning. Read the Word and apply it. You know, James 
In the Bible, he says that the man who reads the Word of God and doesn't do it is like a man who looks in the mirror one morning and sees ketchup all across his cheek. Why you have ketchup on your cheek in the morning, I don't know. This is my telling of James as opposed to James' words. Uh, and, he, and he walks away and does nothing about it. You know, he thinks, oh man, I've got to fix my face only to go into that meeting with ketchup on his cheek. That man's a fool. James says that's the kind of person who reads the Word, maybe legalistically or just to get through your Bible reading, just to make yourself feel better, as if God's going to sprinkle you with a little bit of blessing because you did it. And then we don't actually obey it. We don't change. We don't do it. We, we don't grow by it, right? That's application. We're people of God's Word who are changed by God's Word. And nothing gives us the kind of change that we need like God's Word. You know, sure, there's other things that could help us live better lives and get along. You know, uh, something like working out. Very good thing. You should, you know, it would, it would increase your lifespan on this earth to exercise, right? To learn some things about nutrition, perhaps. I mean, these are, these are good things but it's not going to cause the change that we really need before God. Are you with me? Nothing changes us and even has the capacity to change us like the Word of God. You see, man's primary problem is not that we are poor. It's not that we have poor social skills. It's not that we have poor education or poor communication. Man's primary problem is that we are rebels against God. We need to be reconciled with God. And reconciliation is the solution to our problem. Well, how does this happen? God sent His Son into the world to live the life that we should have lived. He lived a life perfect obedience before the Father, and He died on the cross, dying the death that we should have died. And when he died, he took the judgment for our sin on himself. He took death. He took punishment. He took all of it. Bore it all on the cross. Like we read this morning, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And then he looks across that cavern of death and he says, all who are tired and weary, come to me. Turn from your sins and trust in me. And He gives us the Holy Spirit and He forgives us of all, all of our sins and He promises that one day we will be freed from even the presence of sin, living forever with God in glory. How do we know that? It's because of God's Word. It's because God stooped to our level and He revealed His Word, His plan to us. It's His Word. How do we know anything about God and us? How do we grow? How, how do we go into this world now as a Christian and continue to cling to this faith until the day that we die? Going through the suffering of death. I, mean, I, just, I just think of the tears that will one day come out of the people in this room 
as we suffer in this life, as we face our own mortality and die one day, how will we keep growing until that day and never throw in the towel and never say, I'm done with this foundation, I'm moving on to something else, I'm building a different kind of life. Well, it's through God's Word, but even the Bible itself is insufficient without the Holy Spirit illuminating His Word and doing the work that we could never do in our own flesh. And so we are a people who rely on the Spirit of God. As we go into this age-old battle, as we, if you're not a Christian, come to Jesus today. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and know that you are now beginning your thrust into the middle of an age-old battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. A war for your soul. And saints, we fight with this sword that He has given us. And with the Holy Spirit's power, we wield this sword going into this battle and we will win. We will win. We will have victory. We will grow. We will keep the faith. We will build on this foundation until that day God calls us home and gives us a new body and we see Christ face to face. And on that day, it will be glory. It will be glory. It will be worth it all. Amen. How do I help another person grow? That's my third point. How do I help another person grow? Let me give you 10 quick tips on how to help another person grow. Are you ready? I had to look at my time here. I'm skipping over some stuff. Can I tell you what I'm skipping over? I'm skipping over the importance of being in a church with expositional preaching. Not because it's not important, but because I've already talked about it. But if you're going to be growing, you've got to be in a church where the main diet of the preaching is the Word of God, not man's ideas. And so whether it's this church or another church, find a church where God's Word is the steady diet of preaching in that church. I, 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 I knew a woman who uh, shared the story of, of how she was struggling in her marriage. And she was at a, at a sort of a topical church where they hardly ever used the Bible. And it was always topical stuff. And they were doing this topical series on marriage. And... Um, their marriage just kept getting worse. And then through other circumstances, they had to leave that church and they joined another church where they were just doing expositional preaching, just preaching through something like Romans. I forget what the book of the Bible was they were preaching through. And she, sa she said the craziest thing happened. Their marriage began to grow, began to improve. She said what we needed was not just man's ideas, on how to have a better marriage. But we needed the word of God applied to our life. And when we grew, 
our marriage got better. Expositional preaching. But I'm going to skip all that part. <laughs> Third point uh, is, is how do I help another grow, another person grow? Ten tips. Number one, just know that helping another person grow will help you grow. It's like the last step of AA where you have to help somebody else. They're tapping into something that's very human there. They're tapping into something that God has instilled in us, that we grow through helping another person grow. Number two, find somebody and seek to do them spiritual good. Number three, your church is the best place to start. Prioritize relationships in your local church as a starting point. Not the only point, but it's the most natural starting point. And among your local church, prioritize the person who is alone. Maybe nobody's talking to them. Maybe a first-time attendee or a new member. Number four, we have a new bookstore coming. That bookstore is designed to equip you. This is not just a commercial for a bookstore, by the way. It just fits. Uh, it's, it's not open yet, but you can take a look at it. It's designed to just equip you with some good discipleship material. Make it a habit to linger with somebody and to hang out with somebody after church and then walk over there and buy them a book and say, let's read this book together or get something else off of Amazon that we might not have. But, but be thinking of like, how can I use other resources that I know are good material to help do spiritual good to another individual? Number five, meet with people and just read the Bible. Don't know what to do? Read the Bible together. Number six, make it a regular practice, just as an idea. These are all just ideas for you. Make it a regular practice to meet with somebody for 30 minutes or so after the service or on Sunday evenings and just discuss the sermon. What did you get out of it? What are some takeaways? Number seven, be the initiator. Don't just simply wait, sitting back on your hands, saying nobody reached out to me. Reach out to them. Be the initiator in a discipleship relationship. Number eight, make it a culture, not a program. Meaning don't wait for the program on discipleship. We have programs. Sunday mornings is a program. Wednesday night Bible study is a program. You know, there's a place for programs. But where disciples are really made is not just simply through a program, it's through a culture of discipleship. You don't need a program in Baltimore to make Ravens fans. It's just part of the culture. It's part of the family that you come from. It's part of your friend culture that you just get sucked into it and start hanging out with David Scott and you're a Ravens fan, <laughs> you know? But there's no program. Are you with me? So, so what I'm saying is this, is be a culture maker in this church. Make, make, it, make it our culture, meaning let it, this is number nine, let it be normal to center your life and interactions around the church and around Christ. Let it be normal to speak Christ to one another and to speak his word to each other. Prioritize uh, relationships with people in the church. Prioritize hospitality. If possible, consider moving into the neighborhood so that you can be near one another and continue to grow in discipleship with each other. A number of members have intentionally done that. And number 10, lastly, be patient with one another. Be patient with one another. If we're going to have a culture of growth in this church, we have to have a culture of patience with one another. 
My encouragement is always this. If you want to think about, like, what's the typical speed of growth for a Christian? I say take a chair and go sit out uh, in front of this tree over here. And just sit down in front of the tree and watch the tree for 10 minutes. An hour if you'd like. And just watch it grow. You'll probably be discouraged and quit after 10 minutes. But it's growing. It's growing. You have to step away for a while. Come back to it. Step away and come back. And over time you realize, wow, I... I, I I didn't even see the growth happening, but when I look at a picture from five years ago, years ago, that tree was tiny. This is how Christians grow. And because of our need for speed, we give up on people way too quick. I've known good Christians, Christians that genuinely love Jesus, that will meet with somebody for a year, and they don't see the kind of growth that they want to see in them. They get hurt by them. They get lied to, they, you know, they, they, they're disappointed, and they give up on them. Let me ask you this. Did you get where you're at in your spiritual walk after just a year? Like, mature Christian in the room, how long has it taken you to arrive at your current state of spiritual maturity? It's taken years. Years. And when you look back at yourself, Sometimes you're embarrassed and you're so thankful for the people who put up with you when you were a young believer that were kind to you and didn't come across harshly and didn't, didn't just walk out on you. And we've got to be patient with each other. Paul Tripp writes that he is deeply persuaded that we are way too influenced by a culture of a short attention span. Meaning we're always looking for the next best, best thing. We're, we're always looking for instant gratif gratification. We're part of this easily bored culture and tempted to just simply chase the next best thing and go after the next hot young leader and influencer. We're too influenced by social media flashes. We're always looking for strategies for quick growth. We're too tempted to like the quick and despise the slow. We're too tempted to esteem the new and disrespect the old. The culture around, uh, around, around us tends to lack patience. And Christians tend to lack patience with each other. That's why my tenth point is a big one. If we're going to have a culture of growth, we must have a culture of patience. Oh, how many of you know that Christ is the ever-faithful, patient Redeemer? Paul Tripp continues, he says he's blown away by God's patience. Think of God's patience. How many years between Adam and the tomb? Think of God's patience after sending prophet after prophet with the same warning and the same welcome. Think of Jesus' amazing patience with His disciples and with uh, the, the early church and the epistles. Think of God's patience 
as His judgment waits while His mercy works. Well, how can we miss that our daily hope is in God's patient grace? Tripp says, from the big story of the Bible to the individual stories, these are all portraits of an ever-faithful, patient Redeemer. Oh, praise Him, church, that God is a patient God. Amen? Amen. Praise God that He has been patient with your growth. And praise God for your growth. Think back to when you were just a little sapling of a believer. You could have easily been blown away by the latest storm. But God supported you by His mercy. And praise God for the fact that when you are old and gray, you will be a mature believer because of His grace. And by mature believer, I don't mean an oak tree, I mean a bruised reed compared to the oak tree of Jesus Christ. Even then, even in our most mature years, we will forever be relying on the grace of God on His mercy. Praise God for your growth and praise God for the fact that you are not and will never be saved because of your growth. Amen? Amen. I'm just thankful that you're saved. I'm thankful that I'm saved. I'm thankful that God has filled you with the Holy Spirit. And I am persuaded in spite of all your weaknesses and all the temptations before you that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that growth is what marks the believer. Meaning you allow us to continue to be conformed to the image of Christ. God, I, I, I pray that you would help us to grow and to be conformed to the image of Christ that you would continue to sanctify us so that your promises would, to us would be fulfilled, that one day we will see Jesus face to face, that we will arrive in Christ and forever be fully grown with our brother, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.